it wouldn't be loving if I knew for a fact that imminent doom was coming to you and I said nothing. Hell is one of the most neglected topics in the modern Christian church. It wasn't so with Jesus. Jesus never neglected preaching and warning people about the imminent hell that was coming for those who did not repent. And what would cause Jesus to preach so firm and so consistently on the topic of hell? The answer might surprise you. It was his great love for the very people who are heading to hell. His love forced him to speak the truth, no matter how hard it would be for the hearers. But his love did not stop there. Jesus did something about it. Jesus did something to rescue the people from this awful place he warned them was coming. Listen in to hear more on the relationship between Jesus' love for people and the reality of hell in Pastor Joplin's message, The Perfect Prison. Hell is one of the most neglected topics in the modern Christian church, something that we do not hear a lot about. But Jesus never neglected warning people about the imminent hell that was coming for those who did not repent. This is Jesus' first sermon. I want you to just kind of let that sink in. It's his first sermon. And this is a really strong reference to hell right in the middle of it, but he actually references hell several times and warns of hell several times in his first sermon. He didn't spend two years building a crowd, two years convincing everybody that he was soft and lovable, and then break the news. But look, I also have some really hard things to tell you. He started off with this. It's an important thing because I, I do think that we, we kind of misunderstand the true character of Jesus. We've made him out to be some soft, weak guy that will overlook anything as long as you'll be his friend. It's just not the Bible, folks. If Jesus, the Jesus of modern day Christian thinking, were in fact the true Jesus, he wouldn't have been crucified with mobs of people there cheering his death on. And Jesus preached some really hard things, and he was never afraid to preach on hell. And I want to ask the question why? You know, some will say, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? It's, it's kind of a, a ridiculous question on two fronts. It's ridiculous on one front to accuse God of not being loving for, quote, sending people to hell. Several years ago, we had an absolute atrocity of murders that happened in a field in northeast Wichita. I don't even want to mention their names. I don't like mentioning the names of people like that. But if you were here, you know what I'm talking about. It's horrible. Can you imagine a scenario where those awful, murderous, ravenous men stood in front of a judge and the judge said this, and I quote, I know you're guilty and what you did was terrible, but I'm a loving judge. I don't want to see you suffer for what you've done. You can go free. We would be appalled, wouldn't we? I mean appalled. 
And yet somehow we say if God's loving, that's what he'll do with people who have spent their life in anarchy to his laws? It's insane. The other problem with that mindset is that God sends people to hell. We send ourselves to hell. The judge isn't the one that sent those murderers to prison. They sent themselves there when they did what they did. But the question there, it's, it's a question of like God's love. And here's the reality though. Nobody has ever loved you more than Jesus. Jesus was the most loving person ever to walk the planet. He embodied perfect love. And here he is, sermon one. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It'd be a lot better to go to heaven without an eye than to spend your life in hell. That's strong. What I want us to see this morning is what I'm going to call the connection between the love of God or the love of Jesus and the reality of hell. How do we, what do we, where do we see those things tie up? Great news is I only got two points this morning. I don't know if I've ever in my life preached a sermon with two points. I spent a good 10 minutes trying to come up with a good third one, folks, and I just couldn't do it, and I'm like, I'm not going to do it. The sermon's complete with two points. I'm not going to add to it. And so we'll probably be done quick. I do have a lot of verses this morning, because it's important when I'm dealing with a topic like this that you see and read with your own eyes, you hear with your own ears, the, the, the vastness of how the Scriptures deal with this topic of hell. But I want us to look at what I'm simply going to call the eter two eternally important facts about the love of Jesus as it relates to hell. The first one, very simple. Jesus loved us enough to warn us of hell. That's why Jesus preached about it. He loved us enough to warn us about it. It's impossible to argue that you really love somebody if you're not willing to warn them of the atrocity that is ahead. Like somehow we've been duped into believing that we're being extra loving by only trying to say things that make people feel good. It's just not true. Jesus never did that. In fact, when you study most of Jesus' preaching, most of the time people didn't leave feeling really good. It's very different from today's modern day preaching. Most of the time they left convicted. Sometimes they left angry. Sometimes they left frustrated. We're going to see sometimes they left sad. And yet, please don't miss it, nobody loved these people more than Jesus. Because love says the hard things. Love warns. Now, this couple, some of the things I'm going to say this morning are going to be very difficult for, for us as people to want to receive and I just, I just plead with you to let the Holy Spirit do a work in your heart this morning and just be honest with yourself. If it's impossible for Jesus to truly love us without warning us, 
When's the last time you warned somebody about an imminent hell that they're facing if they don't repent? Now, follow me for just a minute. Even when I ask that question, you will find that in your heart, you start justifying like why you don't go there and you'll find the interesting answer you come up with is you're just trying to be loving. Just trying to be kind, just trying to be sensitive, just trying to be loving. Imagine being in a burning this building to the ground and you know about it. It's about to collapse and everybody in there is going to die. But on the way down, as you're running down the stairs, you refuse to yell into every single room, get out of this place, we're all going to die, because you don't want to hurt nobody's feelings. You don't want to offend anybody. Nobody wants to hear that news. I don't want to hear the building's going to collapse and I'm going to die if I don't change and I don't move from where I'm at. I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that, man. It wouldn't be loving if I knew for a fact imminent doom was coming to you. And I said, nothing. This is why Jesus warned us. And he gave us some really specific warnings about hell. First of all, notice the place. It is what I will call a perfect prison. Hell is the perfect prison. First of all, it's unescapable. Nobody ever gets out of hell. There isn't like you get to be there for 10,000 years if you committed X amount of crimes against God and you get to be there for a billion years if you were a super bad sinner, but then eventually after you pay your time, you get out of hell and you get to come join the rest of us at heaven. No, it's unescapable. As far as prisons are concerned, it is the perfect prison. There's no way out. It is done. Years ago, at least in my lifetime, they created what we call the Supermax in Colorado. It's supposed to be the most secure prison on the planet, impossible to get out of. In reality, all it would take to get out of that prison is a good handful of crooked guards that decided they were going to work together and help somebody escape. But there are no guards working in hell to get people out. It is unescapable. Not only is it unescapable, hell is really indescribable. The place of hell is indescribable. When you look at some of the ways that the Bible uses, and we're going to read several of these together here in a moment. I just want to go through a few of them with you. When you look at some of the ways the Bible describes hell, it's hard to wrap our mind around it uses words like it's the place where the worm dies not or the worm never dies. That statement creeps me out. Like what is the worm? Is it a physical thing that actually crawls in people and eats their skin and but yet it never dies and they never die? You know, like I, just the thought of it is terrifying to me. What does it actually mean? I've heard all sorts of different things. I've read a lot of commentaries on it, but I just know that sounds terrible. It's a place, they say, where there is weeping, that's just utter crying and gnashing of teeth, like, ah! It's a place of hell fire, and eternal torment, and then it's also called a place of the blackness of utter darkness. 
I've never seen fire that put off utter darkness. I, so my mind has a hard time taking all of these terms and really trying to understand how horrendous hell is. God's done everything he can to give us this great big picture of how terrible it is. And I'm here to tell you, we really can't even describe it. There's a much briefer statement about heaven that communicates what I'm trying to say about hell. So we have a lot in the Bible about heaven, what heaven's going to be like. There's not going to be sickness, pain, sorrow. There's, we have a lot. But there's this statement in the New Testament that says this about heaven. That Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man the things which God has prepared for those of us in heaven. In other words, you can't really see it. You can't fully hear it. You can't understand it. It hasn't opened into your heart. Even though you've read about it, you've thought about it, you've dreamed about it, it's beyond your ability to fully comprehend. I'm telling you the opposite is also true about hell. It's indescribable, folks. It is the perfect prison. It's unescapable. It is indescribable. And finally, it is eternal. Never ending. Infinite. Look what Matthew 25, verses 41 through 46 say. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. They will also answer, saying, Lord... When did we see you were hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Quite simply, it's eternal it's never ending. Hell is a perfect prison. It is awful beyond words. Jesus said that's what the place is like. Then he taught us what kind of people are going to be there. Now that's an important question to answer. What kind of people are going to be there? You're going to find that the answer is shocking. The first type of people that are going to be there are the good people. Good people will be in hell. I want to look at just two verses or passages. First, in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery, excuse me, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now look at verse 20, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus looking at him, loved him. You see that, those are really two important words there. Jesus understood that this guy didn't get it. We're going to see that this guy wasn't actually willing to follow Jesus. Jesus knew it. Jesus loved him enough to prove it. 
He was going to throw out the one thing in this guy's life that he was like, no, I'm not doing that. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the son of God or not. This is one area in my life you have no authority over. And Jesus puts that out for him to see. And Jesus loved him enough, though, to provide a way for him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Now look at verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Good people do not go to heaven. Saved people do. It does not matter how good you are. I can't tell you the number of funerals that I have set through in my life, not ones I've preached, I assure you, where people were preaching to heaven because they were good people. We don't like thinking about these things because nobody likes to think that, 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 that people go to hell, but the reality is most people go to hell. That's what the Bible teaches us. And hell is a real place. And you don't get into heaven by being good. You don't get into heaven by, you know, keeping all the commandments like this guy said that he did. We must truly follow Jesus. We must truly repent of our sins and follow him. Good people are going to be in hell. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus said there's going to be church people there. People who show up and they do the good things and they, you know, they, they tithe and they sing the songs and they serve and they do this and they do that and they know the terminology, but there's a secret about them. They live the life of lawlessness. They're workers of lawlessness. They practice it. They live it. They work it. They don't care what my law says. They don't care what my word says. They live how they want to live. They do what they want to do. They go their own way. And he says, these people will depart from me in the end and split hell wide open, never to get out. There will be good people there. We also see not only good people, Jesus says, for the most part, that glamorous people are going to be there. In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, uh, you'll find the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We see Jesus show that here the rich, the rich young ruler was just not willing to truly follow, give, give everything he had to the Lord and follow the Lord. Several, uh, probably months ago, I preached a sermon series, uh, No Rich Men in Heaven. If you've not heard that sermon series, you need to go back and listen to it. Because that's what Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I took an entire set of weeks to build that out. And so I don't have time to do it this morning, but the general principle was always this. Anything that stands in between us and God is proof that he's not really God in our life. And that it is more difficult for us to truly let God be God in our life the more that we feel like we own. It's not impossible for anybody to be saved. All things are possible with God. But Jesus teaches this repeatedly over and over again. I look at Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his own soul? 
Jesus teaches repeatedly the deceitfulness of riches, the dangerousness of basically the things that we as people tend to worship, the type of people that the world tends to worship, the type of people that have millions of followers, the type of people that are what we would call the glamorous. Jesus says the extreme majority of those people are gonna be in hell as well. It doesn't matter how much they have. It doesn't matter how good they've done with their life. It doesn't matter how successful they are here on earth. And then clearly, we have the group of people that I would call the guilty. These are the ones that are not nearly as confusing. Obvious, guilty. These are the ones that certainly don't fit that category as the first rich young ruler that said, I've done it all. I want to show you some passages here, two passages uh, concerning who the Bible tells us clearly will be in hell. Revelation 21 and verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. You know Jesus puts liars with murderers? Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We see a similar list in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Notice the term things like these. In other words, this isn't the list. If you are wrapped up in sin and you know it, but your thing wasn't on the list. Just to make sure you know you're on the list, we see God add the words, things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Look at, the, we see it again, warning. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to give you a principle about Bible interpretation. It's a very important principle. There are some things that are difficult to understand in the Bible. That's a fact. Even Peter, when Peter was writing about the apostle Paul writing, Peter said some of the things Paul writes are kind of hard to understand for all of us. So the Bible itself acknowledges there are certain parts of it that are a little difficult for us to wrap our mind around. Very important truth here. When we're determining truth, when we're determining doctrine, when we're determining what the Bible teaches, we interpret the more difficult areas by the clear, simple ones that are impossible to get wrong. And I'll tell you what I told the group at 9 o'clock. We can sit around and debate until we're blue in the face. We can, we can get on a ship and fly to the moon and back and talk all the way there and all the way back about what you believe about eternal security what you believe about Jesus being able to keep all of his sheep and God not losing any of his flock, 
what you believe about how all that works. But here's one thing that we cannot get away from. Those who do these things are going to split hell wide open. And that's unmistakable. That's what it says. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we don't want to believe that. Well, sometimes we don't want to believe that because that's us. Or that's our loved ones. We want to believe that everybody's saved. Everybody's going to heaven. They're not. And the worst part about it is God has made it unmistakably clear. We will be without excuse. Nobody's going to show up and say, well, I didn't, I didn't know uh, all my sexual immorality was a sin that would keep me from you, God. Yes, you did know that. You knew the Bible said it over and over again. You heard a preacher with enough integrity to get up and tell you that's what the Bible says. Get up and preach it. Yes, you do know. It's a refusal to believe. It's a refusal to repent. It's a refusal to obey. So Jesus preached on this stuff, guys. He was strong about it. The place, the type of people that will be there. And why did he preach? Because he loved us enough to warn us. My second point this morning, though, is what's most important. He loved us enough to save us from hell. You could say it this way. He loved us enough to do something about it. He didn't just warn. He didn't just preach. His message didn't stop right there. Like the message doesn't stop there this morning. It's not like, well, that's it. Goodbye. Jesus did something about it. He loved us enough, not just to warn us of what was coming, but to literally leave heaven, come to earth, clothe himself in human flesh, live the perfect life for 33 years, and die on a cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. You go back to the righteous judge that I spoke of earlier. None of us could ever appreciate, respect, believe in, follow, submit to, celebrate, you name it. We could never do that for a judge that would just let like those evil murderers go free and say, well, because I'm a very loving guy. There has to be justice paid. And see, the exact same thing's true about God. His justice had to be satisfied. And Jesus looked at the enormity of your crimes against God. He looked at the anarchy of your heart. He looked at the unwillingness of you to submit to God's laws and follow God and said, they're going to have to pay for this. They're going to have to pay for it. But God, I don't want them to pay for it. Let me, let me pay the cost for their wickedness. Let me pay the cost for their crimes. And the cost was his blood. Look what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says. In him, that's speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption. The cost has been paid. 
through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness. That means the debt is gone. It is released all through Christ and it's according to the riches of his grace, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, not because we did anything that made him change his mind about our wickedness, but because he is good, he is a God of grace, he is a God of love, and while he loved us enough to warn us, he loved us enough to do something about it and to save us from a very real hell. You know, that's what we're saved from. A lot of people don't understand the term, like, what, what, what do you mean you're saved? It doesn't even make sense to a lot of people. The false gospel that's permeated this culture is this devilish gospel that God's primary goal is just to make you even happier than you are right now. That doesn't even make sense. So what am I being saved from? Saved from a life of like sort of being happy to a life of being real happy? It's nonsense. Now we are saved from hell. That's what we're saved from. Saved from the due and righteous penalty of our wicked anarchy against God. That's what we're saved from. And have you been saved from the wrath to come this morning? Are you saved today? He loved us enough to save us from hell. I want you to consider the price that he paid, and I want you to consider the pardon that he offers. And I am very careful with that statement. The pardon that he offers. Revelation 1, verses 17 through 18 says, When I saw him, this is John, in Revelation The Lord Jesus appeared to him, and here's what it says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Jesus stood then and he stands now and says, I have risen from the dead. I have defeated death, hell, and the grave. And I alone hold the key to let you out. This is why Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but through me. He alone holds the key. He alone is the only one who can save. This is why the Bible declares there is no name given under heaven whereby men might be saved except the name of Jesus. There's not a lot of paths. There's not a lot of keys. There's not a lot of roads. There is one road. There is one gate. There is one way. There is one Savior. There is one risen Son of God. His name is Jesus, and He is the only one. But I'm telling you this morning, brothers and sisters, He has the pardon to your jail cell and hell, if you will put your faith in him, he alone holds the keys to let you out. I told you I chose the word carefully, the pardon that he offers. I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would get in place, prepare for an invitation. The pardon is offered, but never I'm going to say that again. The pardon is offered to everyone, but never forced 
on anyone. Let's look at a couple of verses. John 7, verses 37 through 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That is, anyone, brothers and sisters. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the pardon is offered to everyone It does not matter how far you have run from God. It does not matter the enormity of your crimes against God. It does not matter how many sins you have committed. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to pardon you and cleanse you and redeem you from all of your sins. Whoever believes, Jesus said, whoever wants to come, There is nobody that cannot be saved. The offer for salvation, the offer for the pardoning of our sins is to everyone. Brothers and sisters, it would do us good to remember that again in the house of God. Sometimes the way we treat people Sometimes the way we respond to certain groups of people, affiliations. You would think we plumb forgot that Jesus shed his blood to rescue those people from hell. And somehow what we're trying to do is just rush them off the cliff to get to hell as fast as possible. Shame on us. I'm telling you, we need a vision, brothers and sisters, of the reality of hell. I believe it was D.L. Moody. I don't know that for a fact, but I believe it was D.L. Moody that said that if he could do anything that would raise up a great generation of preachers, he'd get rid of all the seminaries, throw them in the garbage where they belong, and send everybody that felt like they were called to preach the gospel to 10 minutes in hell. He said 10 minutes in hell would create the greatest evangelist that ever walked the planet. You know, I really believe that. I really believe if we were able, I told you it's indescribable, but just imagine if God were to give us 10 minutes and we were able to go and we were able to see and we were able to experience hell. I promise you this, it'd change the way you live tomorrow. It'd change the way you talk to people tomorrow. You start loving people more than you do now, enough to actually talk to them and warn them. And you'd find ways, you'd pray for ways to talk to them about their soul. It changed the way you prayed. It, a sense of urgency would be birthed in your heart to rescue as many people as you possibly could. And yet, so many of us are out walking around in the shallows of Christianity, fighting for much lesser causes than what our Savior died for. To save the lost. To rescue the perishing. To keep people from having to go to hell. 
This morning, if you are here and you are not saved, if you don't know that you know that you know that you're saved, nothing could be more important. Absolutely nothing. And the pardon is offered, but it's never forced. God will not force you to turn from your sins. He will plead with you because he loves you. He will burden some preacher with enough burden to get up and have enough integrity to preach the truth about a very real literal hell. And he will spell it out as clearly as it can be spelled out. But he will leave the choice to you. It's your choice this morning. And I plead with you, that you, I just I plead with you to come. Nothing, nothing could ever be more important. And there has never been an environment like, you know, there, there's not going to be a better environment than this one here with multitudes of people just like me who God rescued and redeemed. I didn't deserve to be saved. I was one of the most wicked people you've ever met. And I don't want to trade lemons and have this big talk about whose sins were worse. God's not glorified in all that. But all I'm telling you is I was rescued and redeemed and you, you got nothing to be ashamed of. We're all sinners. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Everybody needs saved. And you'll, you, you'll never be in a better place than where you are right now. You don't have to understand it all. You don't, have to, you don't have to totally make sense of all of it. You just need to know that the Lord of heaven and earth, he's dealing with your heart and he's calling you to come to him. Just trust him that he's good and come and pray and ask him to forgive you and to change your life and he'll meet you right there. And then those of us that are Christians, do we, do we need a revival maybe in our own heart, an awakening of the enormous weight of what God has put in our hands. It's our job to win the lost. It's, it's our job to love people like Jesus loved people enough to go to where they are and to plead with them and to love them enough to tell them the truth. And I'm telling you, when you do it in love, it's not easy. But people know the difference when you're trying to hurt them and wound them. They know. I sure pray that you know I'm not trying to hurt or wound anybody this morning. I'm not. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to wound anybody. And I hope you can tell the difference of someone that cares enough to say the hard things because they love you. And they really do care enough. They actually care about you. Not just have some fake relationship where you like me, but we care because I want to help. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, those of us that are truly safe. We've got a God-given responsibility to be preaching the gospel, the real gospel to people. It's actually great news that Jesus died for us when we understand the enormity of our crimes before God.